Hello and welcome to the Jacob Burns Filmcast. My name is Mike Taudreau and for the final time this season, we're going to dig into one more Q&A that we held at the JBFC last year. Here at the JBFC year-round documentary series Global Watch, Crisis and Social Action works to untangle the stories behind the headlines, shed light in dark corners, and introduce us to the people working to make the world a better place. One of last year's Global Watch events featured a screening of the riveting documentary What is Democracy, followed by a Q&A between filmmaker Astra Taylor and JBFC programming director Brian Ackerman. We are thrilled to share this fascinating and relevant conversation with you all, so let's dive in. Um, so I, I mean, the film is so expansive in the way that we think about these ideas that we just don't think about, actually. Um, I, it's funny because you're the questioner in this film, so it's weird for me to be questioning you. Um, I like to have that spot. <laughs> um, so, but I just, I thought I would, um, I just to ask you something about your upbringing, because I think it's interesting to me that you're such a questioner in this film. And, it's, and one of the things that, that we don't really talk about is like, what does it make to make a questioner? Yeah. And your upbringing is sort of unusual. And obviously, if you raise people in a particular way, mm-hmm. they're going to be a particular way. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean. So, I mean, can you say something about about how you were? Yeah. You know, sort of an interesting, interesting background. Okay. That, yeah. Well, thank, first, I want to say thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here in this beautiful cinema. I want to thank all of you for being here. Um, and I do just want to take a second to point out my my producer Leah Marin. Uh, right. Uh, say hello. <laughs> uh, my creative collaborator. You know who greenlit the film and and when I wrote this crazy email in 2013 saying, I think I want to make a movie called What is Democracy? She said, yes, I think this you're on to something. So I don't know who else would do that at that moment. So thank you, Leah. Did, um, you, did you never have any other title for the film? It was always What is Democracy? I always wanted to have the question as my lodestar. And I think there was a period where I thought, OK, something better, more poetic will come to me. I did think about calling it the trouble with democracy, but I meant trouble in a multifaceted way. I meant, okay, yes, democracy's in trouble, but also that we need to make trouble. We need to be active. We need to be protesting. We need to be political. And also that it's trouble. It's isn't it's a pain in the fucking ass because you know, there's the joke, freedom is an endless meeting, right? And so there's that sense of like, it's a lot of trouble. But the context, I think, in our world and the ways that things are right now, people just heard the first, like, really negative meaning of the word, right? That the sort of crisis connotation. And so, what is democracy? The question is really important to me, and asking questions is really important to me. To tie it to your question, you know, what um, uh, we need to think together. So, I see this film as an invitation to think, and it's you know a film that operates in a philosophical register and not a sort of, you know, agitprop or propaganda or persuasive register. And I I engage in persuasion all the time as an activist when I write op-eds for The Guardian or The New York Times and I'm trying to, in 800 words, succinctly say what I think the problem is and how to solve it. But this film is, you know, meant to be more Socratic and to ask, you know, basic, get us reconnected with basic questions. You know, what is democracy? What do we mean? And to say, you know, and to, to remind us that we have to keep questioning and interrogating and questioning our presuppositions. So there was, in an earlier iteration of the film, Leah and I were thinking, you know, this, 
we didn't know the political context that this film would be coming out in. And so there was a period where I thought, okay, do I need to kind of justify to the audience why I'm thinking about democracy? Now it's very obvious, right? <laughs> but it wasn't that, it wasn't, it, people weren't in the same mood, right, when I was beginning this. And so I thought, maybe do I need to tell a little bit about my story? And on, this, the, the film directly has a genesis in Occupy Wall Street. And so I, you know, I'm sure if anyone has been to protest, have you ever walked down the street and chanted, this is what democracy looks like? And that chant always makes me a bit sad because I always think, I hope it looks like more than this. You know, like it can't just be me and my 20 friends in the street. It has to be, you know, it has to be a mode of governing and structuring society and, and you know, living collectively and all these things. So, so Occupy was sort of when it came into my mind, uh, I think when it really cemented, but my childhood was certainly key. And my, my parents, but especially my mother, raised us and my siblings and I, so I'm the oldest, uh, we were unschooled, which is a radical form of homeschooling. And it's essentially this very child-centered, my, the word my mother loves to use is non-coercive, right? Non-coercive, you know, uh, parenting. And so this idea that, you know, it's a very Rousseauian actual kind of approach. It's like if you remove the institutions, people are inherently good and they will, you know, their natural curiosity will flourish. And, you know, you encourage your children to question authority, even your own, and you trust them. And it's a very powerful, I'm so grateful I was raised in this way. But as an adult, I, I just wonder, okay, I don't think this can scale. I believe in public institutions. And I think a real central question in any democracy is, well, when is coercion legitimate? Right? When is coercion legitimate? You know? And I think what's so interesting about my mother in particular is she really pushed the envelope and she said, well, it, you know, she challenged herself to not just say no as a sort of reflex, right, with her kids and to always engage us in a conversation when, when okay, when is, when is it legitimate for an adult to say no? When are our lives at stake? When are we going to endanger ourselves? So that background of a sort of radical democratic upbringing, because she had gone to this democratic free school, hippie free school in the Yukon Territory, and she had really valued that experience. So that was, that was just part of my upbringing, and I think you see it in the film, in my desire, and you see it in my last film too, my desire to take ideas out of schools and out of the academy and out of books and into the into streets, into public life, into movie theaters. Let's think together. Let's not just do this something that we only do at school in the classroom until we're 18 or 22 and then it's over. Let's have this multi-generational, you know, intellectual um, uh, experience together. So it, you, it, it's so formed who I am, but I'm still wrestling with it, right? Because, um, uh, you know, I think, we, I think we also really need institutions. I just think we need institutions that are more accountable and just and, um, and, and help us create this, the democratic people that Wendy Brown talks about and that Rousseau was struggling with, right? I, I, one of the things that I really also love with this film is that, is that it, we're so used to this very neutered sense of what democracy is and, and it's so decoupled from economics. And you open literally with a description of Plato talking about how really democracy is about is about rich and about poor and the relationships between them. And I just wondered if you could talk about that a, a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, part of the film is, you know, well, why make a film when we have so much access to content and to news, right? So it, it has to be, I mean, we're just flooded in content. I don't, we're flooded in, in, in stories about the moment. So, you know, part of what I'm trying to do here is connect, of course, to the things we're living through and the problems that we face and the crisis we're in, but also to give a bigger time horizon and to say, okay, you know, our problems, are these these issues, the issues of oligarchy, or uh, 
you know, oligarchy actually precedes capitalism. You know, ancient Athens wasn't a capitalist society as we understand it, but there was still the problem of wealth and um, and poverty. And um, and so, but to me, the issue of economics is so key. You can't have de democracy. You know, is is the promise of political equality, and you can't have that in an age of concentrated wealth. You can't have that when eight billionaires, six of whom are American, control half the world's wealth, right? And and so this, you know, you see even in the comments when people make sort of xenophobic or racist comments, there's still that economic aspect in what they're saying. And I really found that in people that I spoke to. Um, you know, I I think economics is so central and the question, you know, democracy can't just be a political question separated from economics, right? We have to, I think the challenge of the 21st century is creating a democratic economy and, and addressing the issues of inequality. And I think, you know, um, for me, I think even if we were able to solve that, let's say we had an economically egalitarian world, then we'd still have democratic problems. There'd still be all sorts of democratic dilemmas. But right now it's, I think, I think it's, you know, so central. And so I, but with the phone, I wanted to say, and it's not new. It's been there. And so, you know, ancient Athens stands in as the sort of parable, you know, the sort of mythic birthplace of democracy. Of course, you know, the Athenians didn't invent democracy, but they gave us the word. And then Siena, Italy, represents the sort of birthplace of financial capitalism. And Siena is the home today, is the home of the oldest bank continually in existence. So the Bank of Siena was founded in 1472. And so, you know, it's a very, it's, and the allegory of good and bad government is the first secular fresco. So it was also a place for me to represent, you know, the history of the economic system that we're living in, um, in a way that is sort of a, a twin with the story of democracy. I, I, I wanted to get the, um, the microphone going around. Um, so I think I think everybody was really kind of stunned when Ocasio Cortez came out yeah. with the with the idea of seventy percent for a ten million dollars marginal tax rate, and the public response was hugely in favor of it. I mean, we've been going through several generations in which it's been standard political, yeah. uh, whatever that you can't do that, and that nobody really wants that. And people, this is America, and basically people want to be rich and they want to tax the rich. And I think it's somehow this is really the last. You know, 15 years has really changed some some of that basic sense of of this question. And what I think you realize, like you know, I mean, but that the thing that we're undoing hasn't been around that long, right? I mean, it was Ronald Reagan's presidency that slashed taxes for the richest uh, Americans. So, like, it, that's not that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> um, even I can remember Ronald Reagan being president as a little kid, being like, "There's a man named Ronald Reagan." Um, so, I mean, you know, this. You know, I think she's also just pointing out that there is a there is actually an American tradition of you know state regulation and taxes being quite quite high and you know and getting people to think about what 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 is a marginal tax rate and actually thinking more critically about taxes. But you know, public sentiment um, I, I has been on her side. It's just somebody at that level saying it out loud. You know, I think no yeah, one said it right? out loud. Right? No, I nobody mean, with for, that reach was for saying it. Two generations, it. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so Thank you very much for the film. So I have a question. So you started by saying you had the idea about Occupy Wall Street. Do you have any ideas why it didn't catch us on and it just didn't go anywhere? Yeah. Well, I think it is. There were there were actually periods where I was like, wow, that really went nowhere. But I actually think we're seeing how much it changed the public discourse, right? Because I think it Occupy was very instrumental in um, changing the way that we talk about class in this country and putting 
more uh, putting economic justice issues front and center. So I think it has had quite a big cultural effect. Um, if, but you know, not uh, you know, it didn't transform or revolutionize society, but it was so small. I mean, it, there were there were hardly anybody really in Zuccotti Park. Um, in that encampment, but it certainly changed my life. I, one thing I did, you know, out of that experience was I founded a debtors union. Um, so just like you have a labor union, we now organize the indebted to collectively bargain. We launched the student debt strike. I wrote a New York times op-ed announcing it in 2015. And we've actually won over a billion dollars of debt relief for student borrowers. And, and when I changed the federal, um, federal law that actually is the first, it's, it's basically saying that if you're defrauded by your school, you can actually get your loans canceled. So previously there was no way a borrower could get any um, relief. You know, so that was something that came directly out of Occupy. So I think there, I think it has had, movements are very unpredictable. You know, change is just rarely the sort of like one-to-one -one sort of cause effect thing. And you don't really know how things are going to play out. But I, I think I'm, you know, I think it, I think it did have, have an effect, and I think you know, at that moment, um, there were still so many people who were kind of reluctant to participate in it, right? And yeah, my favorite sign at the uh, at Occupy was, "I love democracy more than I hate this drum circle." <laughs> and it wasn't that I thought, "Wow, you know, I love the aesthetics of this." It was just that I thought, "Okay, you know, we're in an economic crisis, and the only people mobilizing are the Tea Party." Right? It's not about whether you think this represents you perfectly or whether you think the aesthetics are great or the drum circle is cool. It's like, this is the right, to me, I just thought this is the right thing and this is the movement and I don't get to just have the perfect movement be served to me on a silver platter. And so I did everything I could to contribute and try to have it you know, lead to something concrete and valuable. And so um, you know, I, I think the problem with Occupy is not enough people joined and took it and made it their own. Question right here. Yeah, hi. Um, wonderful film. Uh, love discussion of Plato and Rousseau. Would have liked to have heard a little more of Marx, but... Uh, yeah, he got the wall of books. Yeah, that was like the all. best I could you do. Know, I tried. <laughs> because that, that really is at the heart of, yeah. of what our problem is. And I would just say that, yes, what it, what is democracy? Uh, who is going to rule? These are important yeah. questions, but... In my mind, when you look around the world, where, there, where democracy really works is where citizens are questioning how much is enough. That's the question. And people in this country don't really want to look at that question. They, they, you know, people think about, well, what's the minimum that people can, can get along by? But it really has to be looked at from the other side. How much is enough? And it's not really that much. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, so to, to the Marx point, I think, you know, to me, there's, the, the film offers a materialist analysis and it doesn't do, you know, it doesn't speak. And I didn't want to use jargon or rhetoric that I felt actually blocks thought sometimes, you know, it's like, okay, we seize the means of production. It's like the film shows actually how economics are, as you said, e economics is central. Um, and, um, but yeah, I think how much is enough? I and mean, we talk a lot about a minimum wage, and I think you know we should put on the table a maximum wage. You know, yeah, like we always are. You know, that's the thing we focus on poverty as though it's just like lifting poverty. But no, let's. How much is enough? Why would eight? Do eight people need to control half the half the world's wealth? No, you know. And so yeah, let's 
let's put some caps on the upper end instead of just raising the floor. But, you know, this is the kind of idea, who knows, it might be thinkable soon because we're entering a, a, a period where new ideas are well, catching you just, on. You just said it publicly. Yeah. There we go. I'm going to trademark it. <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, I thought it was very... FDR actually talked about it, so, you know, it's an all-American idea. I thought it was a very poignant scene in the school where the young woman uh, makes a comment about her teachers. And, um, you know, as a teacher, I can say that's uh, it's a real resonant moment. And when you juxtapose that scene with the doctor, yeah. uh, the three doctors, I thought that was very interesting. And what I think about in both cases, you have a student being very disheartened by a teacher who doesn't seem to care. And then you have a doctor arguing with his colleagues about something in the middle. And it really has to do, I think, um, with incentives. Mm -hmm. And this, this kind of gets to the heart of the matter when we talk about wealth inequality, where um, that everyone has very different capacities to articulate their own skills and their own um, interests, and I, I would, you know, I would have liked to explore that um, in terms of what what Plato meant about how do we organize where we have differences between ourselves, and in this kind of society and capitalism, where um, if we could if we could transcend capitalism to move these questions aren't really discussed, but they were discussed in the 30s. Um, if you had a socialist organization, would you not need that? Um, and I thought that's underneath this inequality, because when you ask the Tea Party, they say at the end of the day, somebody's got to get up and collect the garbage. And if you don't have a system, that makes people get up and collect the garbage. So, if, I don't know. Yeah. Speaking of economics. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, you know, the thing is, I, I you know, People do people people do all sorts of work. I think that the feminist. So I, I guess what I'll, I'll say as a response to that is, you know, one thing socialist feminists say, and so Silvia Federici is the Italian woman, right? And she's someone I knew from activism and knew around. And she wrote this brilliant book. She's written multiple books, but one is called Caliban and the Witch, and it's about the role of. Uh, so, so during the beginnings of capitalism and, and the enclosure movement, so when sort of communal lands, the commons were enclosed and privatized, she talks about the, the forms of resistance by women. And actually that's when you had all of these women being burnt at the stakes as witches because they were resisting the sort of privatization of their land. And then she's written a lot about social reproduction. So she talks a little about, bit about that. And her point is that there's actually two assembly lines in society. And one assembly line is the assembly line of waged work, the work that we pay for, that people go out, you know, and, and we think of as a real job. She says, well, under that is this whole other assembly line. It's the work mostly done by women. And it's the work that produces the workers. It reproduces daily life. It's the work of care. It's caring for children and caring for elders and making food and educating. And so I, my, my point is that, you know, there's actually all this work that people are doing without incentives, but the, our society doesn't really value Right. And so um, and it goes unpaid and also not just unpaid, but denigrated. Right. As not as not valuable because it's not given a wage. Um, and so I think, you know, we need to revalue so many things to create a democratic society. Right. All of but also to recognize, yeah, you know, actually people people do a lot of really important work without the sort of incentive. Right. Because that and that's historically been women's work. 
Um, and so, you know, this, there are so many ideas that are sort of just hinted at in the film, right? We barely get into the issue of of social reproduction, but I think it's it's there, and you see that in the representations of just you know daily life and and the emphasis on just you know people being together. But people do, uh, you know, people do a lot without the threat of coercion. <laughs> this question of like when is coercion legitimate? Um, but yeah, I think the kids scene is also really important. It gets to the educational issues that, that were raised and the question of, you know, yes, we need education for a democratic society, but what kind of education are students being taught how to participate and, um, how to be part of a, a society that values them and con to contribute, or are they being taught actually to, you know, keep their heads down, be servile, get ready for a position that is, um, uh, you know, where they're, they're not, um, encouraged to, to flourish and to participate. Yeah. I mean, we actually had a screening with students just mm -hmm. before this one that Astra spoke to, and you talked about listening, yeah. which I thought was interesting to them. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, part, you know, I've had some people, I've actually had some people respond to that scene and not like it because they don't think that kids should actually be considered democratic citizens. So I've had some adults go like, well, you know, I, I don't, a kid should listen to their elders. <laughs> um, uh, but for me, I think we should listen to everybody. And so the film has a, I, I hope the film has a politics of listening to it, right? And by, you know, you, I'm the, I'm, you know, central to the film, but unlike many documentaries, I'm not just sort of pontificating the whole time. I'm asking questions and I'm listening. There's a lot of scenes of me just like actively listening. And then there's very conscious choices, you know, that Leah and I made about who to listen to. And so we are so obsessed in this society with the First Amendment and freedom of speech and freedom of speech. And so as I was making this film, I thought a lot about the fact that we don't have any comparable, you know, right of listening or, or politics of listening, right? We don't talk about that as, as part of this. And for, you know, I hope the film by listening to other people also challenges who, this, you know, who is an expert, who's an expert in democracy, who has the capacity to think and reflect on these political and philosophical issues. And it was very important for me in the filming process that every single person I spoke to, I tried to engage them as though they were a philosopher and to ask them things, you know, okay, what is justice to you? What do you think about? You know, I really tried to approach every individual the way that I would, you know, approach someone who is esteemed. And, and it really, I didn't know it was going to work, but I think that, you know, I didn't know what would come of that approach, but I felt it really paid off. Because as I, I spoke to people, they often said, you know, really brilliant things. Not always, but more than I expected. So um, when I was in school, um, you learned that democracy was the rule by the majority. But then, then you had things like a Bill of Rights to protect yeah. the rights of the minorities uh, so that democracy would, in fact, work. Um, and... What this was about was, and what we've seen over the last few years, is how unless you have an assumption, and this is what I sort of got out of the movie, unless you have an assumption behind it of equality of those people who belong to that uh, community, then there are going to be all kinds of ways that people can get around those Bill of Rights and, yeah. and, and the, the, those things that try and protect or keep that democracy working. So what I really got out of the movie was about how that respect for humanity, all humanity, everyone in that, in that society is basic yeah. to having a democracy that works. I mean, that, that school scene was a very small, but sort of a good example of how when you have teachers or administration that don't respect the opinions or ideas of the students, when it's us and them, 
then you, you don't have a democracy being able to survive in that kind of atmosphere at all. And if you take that on a national scale, that's true for me as well from the movie, is that if you don't have uh, everyone in society who believes that everyone else is, whether they're wealthy or not, putting economics aside, but are not on a, on a cultural or a civilization or any other kind of equal scale with them, then the democracy is in trouble. Uh, and it seemed to me that that's what the movie did very well, was point out that you really do have to have that basic sense that we are all in this together, that it is not us or them, but it is us within the confines of the country or the state or whatever it is, uh, then democracy may well fail um, without that. Yeah, that's why there's freedom, equality, and then, well, it's a little sexist by today's standards, but fraternity, you know, or solidarity, right? You need some, you need a, a bond to have those other virtues actually manifest. Can you have such a severe sense of individuality and, and still have a... And still have a I, democracy? And still have a democracy? That, well, I don't know. And I, I mean, this, I think this is a real, you know... The, the thing is, like, look at, so the example of ancient Athens actually has a lot of, you know, problems that aren't in the film. It's very imperialist. But one thing is, you know, on the one hand, uh, the democratic system allowed for this flourishing of political philosophy, right? Because once you have a democracy, then you have people questioning modes of government and suddenly you have Plato attacking democracy. So democracy ironically makes possible his anti-democratic musings. But there were also very strong, a very strong sort of, uh, sort of, cultural constraint, you know, this this real emphasis on the collective and not the individual. And so Rousseau also envisioned democracy is only working in a very small, very homogeneous society. Um, and so where the individual would, um, you know, not have as much um, autonomy as we imagine today. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm also obviously very individualistic. I'm not sure how much individualism a democracy can handle. <laughs> or maybe individual, you know, I think the Mar the Marxist, utopian Marxist view is that actually only under conditions of democracy and equality can individuals really flourish, right? That if we have a, um, in conditions where people's basic needs are met, then all of our quirk quirks and differences could actually really be expressed, right? So maybe out of a, a more democratic system, there were other kinds of differences would come up, come about and not we wouldn't think of inequality as necessarily being about wealth right or or race or gender we would think about all the all the ways we could truly be liberated to be ourselves yeah right I'm yep. um, basically to me what you were sort of saying without saying it is that a, the well the indigenous people for instance that's where democracy really worked in these small Lenape villages, you know, mm -hmm. in New Jersey or wherever. Uh, mm -hmm. They really had democratic societies, but they were also socialist. Mm -hmm. And that because there's kind of a sharing. Mm -hmm. And the minute you sort of have individualism and capitalism and competition, in a way, maybe that's part of what then ruins true democracy. Mm -hmm. I don't know, yeah. just... Almost yeah. a question as much as a statement. Yeah. I don't know the answer myself, but and I never really thought of it that way. But when you pointed out specifically the indigenous people mm -hmm. who really were social, you know, their their societies were really socialist 
sharing societies. Mm-hmm. The weaker help were helped by the people that were more successful hunters or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely a lot. I, I did a lot more research into indigenous forms of governance while writing. So I just finished a companion book that comes out May 7th called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. And so I, you know, I think there are lots of things that we can learn from uh indigenous models. And I think, you know, Sylvia just, she glances, she, she says something that's really profound and interesting. I mean, the way that contact with the quote unquote new world inspired a whole reconception of freedom. I mean, there's actually a lot written about this mm. and um, inspired all the musings about the social contract, you know, and what, what's interesting is that, you know, this was a, these were ideas that were electric at a time when, when, you know, inequality was just taken as a given. Some people were kings, some people were peasants, some people were noble, right? So the idea that um, that people would, there, were, there it would be possible to live in a state of equality and freedom was, you know, something, like I don't think indigenous uh, philosophy is really given enough credit. <laughs> and, um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if any societies really had a democracy by my, I don't know. I'm not sure it's something that was existed in any society and has been lost. I like to think of it as something on the horizon that we are still working towards and that we'll perpetually be be uh, pursuing. So I think there's all sorts of things to learn from different traditions and different periods, but I see it as something yet to come and that we have to constantly sort of midwife into existence and we'll never, we'll never fully have. Oh, I just want to say it was a very thought-provoking film, and democracy is just a word. Yep. It's a very idealistic concept, and I think the film pointed out to me, which I probably didn't think about before this, that America, United States of America, has never been a democracy, probably will never be a democracy, because it's just, it's just too idealistic of a concept. So the challenge for us is, you know, like you said, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street may have given us the D in the word. We got to figure out how to get to the E and the M because we're never going to get to the Y. Yeah. And but you see, I see that as a good thing, right? Like, why should we be like, okay, it's all figured out. We just need to sort of tweak at the margins and perfect it. I think that what I like about the word democracy finishing this film is that it's this you know, who the demos is and how they rule and where they rule. These are things that can shift and evolve and 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 be expanded. So I see the um, the inability to really have it as, as, you know, I see democracy as a promise, not that the powerful sort of like break, but rather as a promise that we have to, as, you know, as the people we have to keep yeah, and but, uh, work but on together. All day long nowadays, <laughs> all we hear is that he's tearing down our democracy. Yeah. Yeah. It was never built up, so he's certainly not helping things, yeah. but uh, it was we never were a democracy. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, was it? Oh, how about that? <laughs> <laughs> the demos wants to speak now. <laughs> the person who has the mic, I guess, is the ruler. Um, thank you. Very yeah, thought-provoking uh, and moving film. Um, it, it led me to have a different idea of what democracy was than I had before, which mm-hmm. in a healthy and functioning democracy, after watching your film, I was thinking that conflict is not the bug, it's the feature of the system. Mm-hmm. That if there's a system that's inherently not democratic, 
that conflict is is non-existent. Mm-hmm. So in, in effect, it, it's a good thing. Uh, number two is the fact that you were able to raise a significant amount of money to be able to make this movie, the fact that it can be presented, yeah. the fact that all the people in the film could actually express their opinions, those are all really positive things. That's yeah. part of a, a theoretical democracy, I think. And then finally, um, do you think democracy is in effect um, the ability to disagree with resources? Is that the ideal of a democracy? Yeah, interesting. So I will say on the fundraising part, though, this is a production of the National Film Board of Canada. So it's a publicly financed film. I could never make this film in the United States unless I was really rich. And that's so important. This is a film that was made not to make a return at the box office. Um, this was a film that was made with a public interest, you know, and for for another purpose. And the National Film Board is... A, a really unique institution in the world. There's a, it, it does feature-length documentaries. It doesn't focus on television. And it's really special. And so I would not be able to make this if there wasn't a sort of public-spirited, democratically-focused uh, you know, uh, entity. I almost called it a company. But you know, it is incorporated, but an entity to, to promote something, something like that's this. that's not dependent on the market. Yeah, it's not dependent on the market. It's very socialist. You know this, 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 and yet what they do is they 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 nurture individual point of view, really strong, you know, director driven documentaries. Um, I think the conflict issues. So the book, my book uh, that I just finished, each chapter is a paradox or a tension that I think is central to democracy. And so, uh, and so, I don't see the division between rich and the poor as one of these because I don't, I don't think democracy has to have a huge divide, economic divide. I don't think that's just like a natural fact of life, right? Just like, you know, masters and slaves wasn't a natural fact of life, I think. But I think there are things that, there are these, there are other tensions that I think are just always going to be there. So how much spontaneity and how much structure, how do you, spontaneity and structure is one, freedom versus equality, uh, coercion versus choice. And one is conflict versus consensus, like where, how much, and I think conflict you know, in, in different form, different traditions in democratic theory put emphasis on the consensus side or on the conflict side, right? Um, and the founding fathers of the United States really dreamed of consensus, right? They hated the idea of political parties because they hated the idea of factions. And so they created, you know, their system that they thought would sort of filter out conflict. Um, Marxists put the emphasis on class conflict, right? There, there are real conflicts of interest between owners and workers. So I think... I do think conflict, though, I, I think that dissensus and conflict are, you know, they're, they're important facets of, of democratic life. And the, the question is, you know, how do you have conflict that doesn't then, uh, you know, delegitimize or dehumanize your opponent, right? How do you have conflict that doesn't tear the society apart? You know, so this idea of legitimate opposition is a good idea. <laughs> it's like, okay, we, can, we, we have to have conflict and still be able to share the earth, you know? So... Yeah, I think conflict is a. I think it's it's an important feature, and um, and you know, some some conflicts aren't easily resolved. Hi, thanks okay. so much for this film. It's made okay, it's made me think so much about so many things. Um, as a much younger person, um, I was. M- I was a, an activist in the anti-Vietnam War movement and in women's movement and but uh, and helped plan demonstrations in New York and Chicago and after the 1968 in Chicago I started thinking well that's you know we have to the revolution if there's such a thing has to be 
has to have something to do with how we raise our young people. So I'm really intrigued to hear that you were unschooled. But um, so I went into the field of early childhood, infant, whatever. But one of the things that I'm curious about is in the film, there's not, there's so much. And there's not a discussion about what is the nature of human nature and the yeah, role okay, of yeah. greed. And there's so many, all of the, seems like all the world wisdom traditions talk about how we have the inclination to good and to yeah. evil or to however they put it. That's yeah. So there is what? a little bit in the discussion of the virtues, Sylvia says, you know, and the greed and the hoarding, right? So there is the sense of that, that these, um, these traits have been part of the human experience. Human nature is a word, I was, I was quite happy that people don't say the, say the two words human nature. And so I even love that at the end, Cornel West says, well, when you look at human history, there's all this terrible stuff when you look at human history. But the human nature, I mean, human nature to me is an open question, you know, because um, uh, people like to say things about human nature that serve their interests. So I'm quite happy human nature isn't discussed. Human history, yes. But uh, human nature, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want somebody making any declarations, you know. Again, I think this issue of the people, right? This question of how do you make a democratic people? Our institutions and our societies form us. And so there is this, there's a feedback loop and we're trying to call a new democratic public into being. I mean, I'm trying, I'm, that's what I'm doing with this film is calling new groups. You know, that's what I'm, uh, you know, calling a, a group that wants to talk about these ideas or with my debtors movement. It's like, okay, let's identify as debtors and engage politically together. So I think, you know, we, we create publics, we create people's, this cinema is creating, you know, a public that watch, watches films that might be considered, I don't know, too fringe in other communities. So um, I'd rather speak in that way than about human nature, which is so essentialist. So, so it's interesting. So, but there is this sort of sense that, um, I might get what you're saying, yeah. uh, but at the same time, if you, what we're creating now in the way that we've structured society is a kind of a desperate yeah. populace. Yeah. And I think everybody can agree that that's the sort of, yeah. whatever, what I call it, human nature or whatever, it's the human that's very difficult to work within a democratic structure yeah. or to sort of, and so it's kind of like there's that tension within that, within sort of the economic sphere and the yeah. sort of the, the political sphere. Yeah, really. when I think that is, so that's one thing, Wendy Brown, who is the woman at Berkeley, I really love her writing on our economic system. So she's written a lot about how neoliberal economics, not only, you know, change the conditions, the sort of financial conditions and, and social structures, but then also remakes what's in our heads. So for example, work when, you know, when students have to go into $50,000 of debt to get an education, it changes the way they think because suddenly they see themselves as seeking a return on an investment and not just getting educated, you know, for the common good. So there is a sense that, um, so I think psychology is really important and how these structures affect our consciousness and, and, uh, and our spirit, you know, but I don't know about, yeah, but it's just that human nature is good or is evil is a little too theological for me. <laughs> uh, just a couple more questions, actually. Yeah, right. one in the front row. I, who has a mic? Yeah. 
No, right here, right there. I, I have a question that's less abstract, which may be because, for me, yeah. some of the discussion, some of the discussion of, of democracy or yeah. Plato, I, I, at least I could, I felt absorbed better from, from a book than, than from a movie. But what I thought was great in this movie was um, some of the interviews with particular people, the, the, the school that somebody mentioned before, the barber shop, uh, the, the guy who was out of prison, the, um, uh, the the three doctors, and I wondered how you found these. I mean, did you just go into a random emergency room or a random <laughs> barbershop, or how, how how did you come across the people you interviewed? Yeah. I mean, so the the sort of theoretical the the academics were people that I had a relationship with before, and so then the other. Um, so in Miami, I sort of entered the activist community through friends who I had been organizing with in New York and were part of the sort of Black Lives Matter movement. There's an amazing group in Miami called the Dream Defenders that emerged. They basically um, were instrumental in the protests after the, the murder of Trayvon Martin. And so through, um, through people who were really, you know, embedded in Miami and who knew me really well and trust me, I would then sort of move one person out of the circle and talk to them and then sort of say, oh, well, who else do you know who's interesting? And so I just, it was really a sort of informal process of, of uh, asking around and, and sort of trusting my instincts. And if I thought somebody seemed interesting, then talking to them. Um, uh, and that's how I, for example, was introduced to the woman, Tanya, the trauma surgeon, who it turned out was actually Canadian. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, and he was like, yeah, come and come and talk to us in the hospital. Um, so it was really it just trusting my instincts and following my nose. And, and the, but I would say the, the magic character for me was that I was like, I had an image of who I wanted to take me on as like a, cra a like crazy, eclectic, eccentric, intellectual tour guide through the ruins in Athens. And I had this sort of idea, the sense of who I wanted. And a friend who was actually came on board as a researcher sort of described this image I had because actually the the, the uh, Hellenic sort of cultural association, they actually offer you experts and it tends to be, they, they all have British accents and they're like these old, it's like they're all like made for the BBC. And I was like, no, no, I'll pass. I just want, I want to, you know, I just want permission to shoot. I'll find my own tour guide. And uh, yeah, she found Effie who was uh the wonderful woman with the red, the red hair. So, you know, that was, I just had the space for her in my imagination. And then she just manifested and was even more, I was like, I just didn't know you'd have such amazing hair. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, but she was like all, she was like everything I wanted and more. It was so great. So, yeah, I mean, that's the fun part is I'm quite introverted and I'm, you know, I'm like home writing most of the time. And then when you're making a movie, you get to go out there and just like any, you know, that desire you have, like, who are you? I wonder who that person is. And, and you get to just talk to them and you have an excuse, which is really fun. Yeah. Yeah, hello. Uh, um, I just wanted to ask you about, for me at least, the problem with democracy is that you have an authority defining who is democratic and who is not. When the United States got independent and then you have Haiti become independent, the United States refused to recognize Haiti as an independent country. Then you had South America getting their independence, and the United States refused to recognize the independence of the South American countries. Then in the 70s, you had dictatorships all across South America. The United States was fully supporting those dictatorships. Yeah, or even put some of them in power. Yeah, and yeah. now, and now uh, for me, it's very important that, that you have had op-eds on 
New York Times and The Guardian, you said, I think. Mm, how much responsibility you put on, put on the media yeah. that, for example, today, right now, the media is validating a person in Brazil, like Bolsonaro, who was elected with, I don't know, like 56% of the vote, yeah. but totally, totally going against Nicolás Maduro in Venezuela, mm -hmm. who was elected with 65% of the vote. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, for me, the media has yeah. a huge responsibility, responsibility uh, supporting a dictator. It's not a dictator, a fascist. Yeah. In, so you in kind of asked, yeah, what, how much responsibility for the media? Is, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, one thing you said that I just want to quickly say is I think the Haitian Revolution is so important. And I wish, you know, if we could just sort of elevate... Uh, there was actually cuts where I tried to re to actually reference the Haitian Revolution more. I was like, well, what if we put the Haitian Revolution on par with the French Revolution, just in our conception of history, right? The, fir this, the successful slave revolt, the first attempt at a real multiracial democracy that then was just like punished by this overwhelming debt from the French, you know? But I think it's such a, I, 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 I think the Haitian Revolution is just such an interesting and important historical reference. And it was something, it was one of the many things I tried to shoehorn into this film, as Leah can tell you. Um, I think the media has a huge role to play. And, um, and it's not in this film though, because I, had, I wrote a book that came out in 2014 called The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in a Digital Age, which is my critique of the media in a digital moment, right? So the way that we we not only have the sort of old system of manufacturing consent, right, which is sort of the interests that control the media, then doing a you know sort of set, uh, spreading messages through a top-down affair. But now we have these digital networks where we can, in theory, all participate and comment, but it's through these very uh, consolidated, centralized, commercialized platforms. And so the writing that book kept me involved in the media debate in this granular way for many years, thinking about not only the state of news, but the state of uh, these new digital giants. And I said everything I want to say in that book, and it still I think it still really stands up, except for the fact that Google is now technically called Alphabet. But it was just, I just, I really didn't, you know, so in, I think media is really important to democracy, but in this film, I wanted to go back even further Right and say okay because for me so many of the pathologies of our media system are, are the economic incentives driving it. I mean, what the problem with so much digital media is that it's even more dependent on advertising money than televisions and newspapers of yore, which you know had other forms of cross subsidy and also like couldn't invade your privacy and read your personal email and like digital digitally stalk you um, and and personally target you in the same way. So I just I wanted to have a. Uh, I just wanted to get away from the media, but uh, I, I do think it's really important. Yeah. Last question. Yeah. I, we do not have kings and vassals ruling our lives. However, we have corporate interests and industrial interests that have taken over and are affecting our water, our the food we eat, the way we live to many degrees. I was wondering, what chance do you think we have of regaining more democracy with these influences that are basically running our lives? Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I think you know, human beings have faced really steep odds, right? The democratic struggle. If you were trying, if you were, I mean, I, I think, I, what chance do we have? I think it's it's not about 
saying we have a chance or not. I said, we have to organize. We have to organize ourselves and act strategically and confront powerful interests. And so it's not, it's, it's really, it comes back to the question about Occupy. It's like, we need to take up that challenge together and do it because people have faced, I think people have faced worse, you know, and, 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 um, and, uh, and so what, yeah, I think it's just, we, we have to do the work. <laughs> and make ourselves uncomfortable. So I think, yeah, we could have a chance if we acted together. Yes. We have to. Okay, yes. yeah. Thank you so much. You have Thanks to for promise. having me. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for the great questions. Thank you have you. to promise to come back. This podcast is supported by the Jacob Burns Film Center. It is mixed, edited, and published by me, Mike Townjoe, and produced by my fantastic co-host, Paige Grandpre. Special thanks to filmmaker Astra Taylor for joining us for this incredible Q&A. JBFC series Global Watch Crisis and Social Action is sponsored by the Lewis and Ann Abrams Foundation, as well as the Theodore and Renee Wheeler Foundation. It is presented with generous support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Please don't forget to subscribe and do us a favor and take a second to rate the Jacob Burns Filmcast on your preferred podcast platform. It helps other people find us and ensures you'll stay in the loop as soon as new episodes are released. You can find us on social media. We're at JBFC underscore NY on Twitter, at JBFC underscore Peville on Instagram, and Jacob Burns Film Center on Facebook and YouTube. If you have a question, comment, or topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, email us at jbfilmcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And at this point, we usually sign off with, we'll see you at the movies. But this week, I want to say, stay safe, stay home. Cozy up and watch a movie on Netflix. And Paige and I will catch you next week for a very special season one finale of the Jacob Burns Filmcast.